Right on, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 18. And uh, let's pick it up right at verse 1. It says this, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew doesn't tell us all the details kind of surrounding this conversation that was happening amongst the other disciples, but the other gospels do tell us uh, where things were at as this conversation gets started. Um, And around this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Mark tells us in his gospel that the disciples were actually traveling with Jesus from Galilee towards Jerusalem uh, for the last time, actually, the last trek from Galilee to Jerusalem where Jesus would be uh, crucified. And as they were journeying, they were having this discussion and, well, actually it was more like a squabble, uh, the first church fight maybe, I don't know. They were squabbling and the discussion among them was surrounding who was the greatest. And so when, when Jesus uh, piped in and uh, asked the question what they were discussing, this lesson that we read here in Matthew chapter 18 is kind of the outcome of Jesus observing all these things. Now, just to remind you, we're, com- we're coming out of Matthew chapter 17, where what we saw was uh, Jesus in the glory of his perfect humanity at his transfiguration, The father spoke from heaven, spoke about his son. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as we saw last week from the glory of the mountain, Jesus descended down into the valley of human experience where there is death, uh, where there is suffering, where there is taxes. And Jesus humbled himself to enter the human experience and even experience death death on a cross. And at this time, as the disciples are been just walking with Jesus, learning all the lessons that Jesus has uh, been teaching them, there certainly is this sense in the gospel that they, were, that they were puzzled by all that Jesus was teaching and demonstrating. And maybe they were confused about all that was going to go down once they got to Jerusalem. Jesus had clearly told them, I, I'm going to, I'll be killed. Uh, um, I'm going to be raised on the third day. day I'm going to suffer at the hands of men. And so, you know, I don't know what the disciple, where their headspace was. Maybe they really thought the kingdom age was going to come at some point near all this uh, time. And if that was to be the case, then maybe this is why they were having the discussion about who was the greatest. You know, you're going to die. You're going to be raised from the dead. The kingdom's going to start all this stuff. You know, where do we fit into this whole thing? And, you know, as... You kind of consider this, all I can think of is, is the humility of Jesus that kind of overshadows this, this chapter, Matthew chapter 18. That he's come down from the Mount of Transfiguration into human experience. And this situation with the disciples, this squabble, this little fight that's happening amongst them, is really, well, it is the antithesis of everything Jesus has been demonstrating to these men. This, situ- this situation really does this. It, it, it shows us the contrast that was happening between the ideals of Jesus and his kingdom and the ideals of these disciples, these, these men who were following him. And what Jesus demonstrates here is that the ideal of the disciples and his ideals were incongruent. This is oil and water. We're going to see this thinking in their head. Well, who's the greatest? It's like oil and water, heaven and hell. 
And Jesus had said to them, your king is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer at the hands of men. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. And they said this, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Like, things are not lining up here. And so in this clash of ideals was really two things that Jesus is going to instruct his disciples on in this this chapter. Uh, The first one is this. He's He's going to talk to them about what true greatness is. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? And the second thing he's going to talk to them about is forgiveness. And so the first half of the chapter deals with greatness, and the second half of the chapter deals with forgiveness. And so first, greatness. You think about what we consider great even in our culture. It's, you know, the money in your bank account, the car you drive, the home you have, the job you have, your celebrity status, the person that's hanging on your arm. I mean, whatever it is, the way that we uh, define greatness. Well, the concept of greatness in the minds of the disciples, well, greatness was defined for them by high position, by title, by notoriety. In the disciples' idea of greatness was the question, who's better than others? Who's on, who's on top of the heap here? I mean, Jesus, if you were to take the 12 of us and compare us, you know, just mix us in. Who's the best? That's the question here. Who rises to the top? And so, you know, as you consider this, you can, you can kind of see why the disciples failed to comprehend the victory of the cross at, at first. We, we can understand why, you know, others could, could ask, what is the greatness of a crucified Lord? Because greatness in their mind was notoriety, title, position. And so in verse 2, we read this. And calling to him a child, he put him in, their, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here's the disciples. Jesus circles the boys up. And and he calls into their midst, into, I don't know, I kind of picture into the center of the circle, this this little child who he has stand in the middle. And and first Jesus speaks as he talks about the child of, of entrance into the kingdom. How do you come into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, unless you turn and you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom. Forget greatness. Let's just talk about getting in the door. Unless you turn and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. That word turn, you know, the King James Version, if you've got, I don't know what it says in the NASB, but if you've got different versions, it might say in your Bible, unless you convert and become like a child. It, It means... Unless Jesus was saying, unless you turn yourself around and you, you change your course of direction, you change your thinking, unless you have a change of mind here, you'll never even see the kingdom. You know, it's not that we're to be childish. We understand that. What Jesus is calling for here is, is, is a heart that is childlike. And we know the only way into the kingdom is to be born again, that those who experience New birth actually take their place in the kingdom as the children of God. We sang that this morning. I am a child of God, no longer a slave to fear. That, that's what our identity becomes when we're born again. We're, we're children. Sometimes I wish I could go back and relive my childhood, right? 
It's pretty awesome. Childhood's a, a lot of, there's a lot of fun and wonderful experiences. And when we're born again, we take a place in the kingdom of a child. You think about the innocence of, I hope, of your, of your childhood. And a child was, uh, in the midst of the disciples, a lesson in simplicity. Nothing sophisticated, no battling for position. Just a child in, in his innocence, trusting the words of Jesus and coming to him when Jesus called him. And so Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To me, that that key word there is is the word humbles. Whoever humbles himself like a child, you know, by nature, by human nature, all of us want to be celebrities rather than servants. We, We know what it's like to be a child and we are to approach Jesus with the heart of, of a child. You know, if you're a parent, you know, you know that idea or you've experienced, I'm sure, over the years, there's kind of nothing like coming in the door of your home, maybe after a day's work, and having your child come running and leap into your arms and say, Daddy, it's like awesome. It's like one of the great things of, of being a parent. And a child does that because there's a, there's a simplicity. There is an innocence. There is this sense of blind obedience that, that trusts and stretches out its arms to a parent. And, and, you know, for me, a father just jumps into the father's arms. And you know, it's a neat picture that that's what our relationship with God is to be like. You remember that? Maybe remember when things were fresh and new for you and it was just your relationship with Jesus was just childlike, innocent, simple. It was just like, Jesus, run into his arms. So glad you're home. So glad we could spend time together. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, you actually have to turn and get back to that place. And and there's something, you know, about Jesus that, that isn't complicated, but can become complicated. You know, we learn doctrine. We experience church politics, we get burned, life is hard. Like, the human experience for all of us is similar, but but there is something about Jesus that needs to be enjoyed with the childlike heart of simplicity. I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you're just happy to be saved? Like, just everything was bright because you had Jesus in your life. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you you have to turn and come back to that. And I think that there is a battle for us as we serve Jesus. You know, the default position of our heart, always to turn towards religion, always to turn towards doing, always to turn towards rituals and regulations and accumulation of knowledge. And there needs to be an effort where we're, we're constantly turning to grace to say, no, I'm turning towards you, Jesus, and I'm going to run to you and I'm going to keep this simple. And so Jesus said, if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself as a little child again. It says in verse 5, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
I don't know, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Those are strong words from Jesus. Oh, strong warning, strong language. And what that tells us is this, is that in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of heaven, we are not to devalue the place of, of children. You know, I would say this, winning children should be a priority of the church. I engaged those kids on purpose this morning so that they know that there's value in them, that, that they know that they have a place here, that they belong, that they are important to this church family. You know, there's a story told of, of Dwight L. Moody who came home one night after a meeting and his family asked him, how many, how many got saved tonight? How many converts? And he said to them, two and a half. And so I was like, two and a half? So you mean like two adults and one kid got saved? And he said, no, 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 no. Two children and one adult. <laughs> he said the adult was an old man and he's only got half of his life left to give. So he only counts as half a convert. The point, children are important to the kingdom of God. You know, there's another story of a Scottish pastor who once um, resigned his church. And the reason that he resigned, maybe you've heard this story before. It's quite a famous story. He was discouraged. His elders asked, why are you resigning? He said, in the last two years of ministry in this church, there's been one convert and it's a little child. His name's Bobby Moffat. And so the pastor packed up his ministry and he, and he left the church. He said, with, with such little fruit, I just, I just can't go on here. Uh, the amazing part of that story is, is that Bobby Moffat grew to become the man that we know as Robert Moffat. And he is, he is credited with... Uh, being the missionary who, who really opened up the continent of Africa to the gospel. Here this pastor thought his ministry was just not very fruitful and he had no idea the fruit that God was doing, even though just one little boy was being saved. And, you know, it just, it makes me think, I wonder, I wonder who we have downstairs in our church. I wonder who's being cared for in the nursery this morning. You know, I, I, amongst the kids in our different classes, whom has God called, you know, to serve as a missionary, as an evangelist, as, as a pastor, as a, a mom, as a, a father, whatever it, whatever it is, you know, how has God wired some of those little ones to serve him and serve his kingdom and serve the message of the gospel? And I think about those who serve our kids. They have a high place in this church. They, they hold a position that's important, th that matters. And Jesus actually says this. He warns. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, whoever knocks them off course, you know, whoever causes them to stumble, Jesus actually says this. It'd be better for you that you drowned. And when I think of different ways of dying, drowning's always one that... Eh, they say it's not that bad, but I don't know who gives that report. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I, th I think of the many humanistic educators that are in our world who have made it their, their mission in life to stumble the faith of other people. Who've made it their mission in maybe a university to stumble the faith of a young man or a young woman. Who've made it their mission to 
stumble the faith of children. And, and Jesus warns, he says, that is a position that puts your life in grave danger. In fact, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The first two woes there, the first one, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's a, it's a lamentation really from Jesus. It's just saying, you know, uh, it's sorrow that there is temptation in the world. I mean, we're all, Jesus was sorrowful about that, that there are temptations. But when he says the second woe, there's more weight to it here. It's a condemnation. You know, there, the reality is this. In this world, problems are inevitable. You know, things that come along to stumble people's faith, they're going to they're gonna happen. But the warning from Jesus is if, if, if a child is derailed in their faith because of your unbelief or because of your cynicism or because of you seeking to derail them, he says, woe to you. Woe to you. In fact, Jesus says, if your hand, causes, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. That's, that's pretty serious measures here. He says, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What's Jesus saying? Is he talking literally about doing these things, poking your eye out and cutting your arm off? No, he's not. I hope you get that. (laughs) But he's encouraging that we take drastic measures and efforts to combat your sin. If there is something that you are doing that is causing temptation for others, Jesus says this, take violent measures and deal with that area of your life. Get get away from it no matter what the price and no matter how painful it is. Don't be that person that causes others to stumble. In fact, Jesus warns of the dangers of hell's fire. He says the, the one who tempts a child to sin is one that really injures the world and puts their future in great jeopardy. And you know, as you read this, it's like you can't soften the words of Jesus. This is like heavy, I think, as you read it, you know. We're, we're, we are made for relationship with him. Every one of us, every human being that's ever been born, made for relationship with our Father who is in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and this is not home. This is temporary. We're made for him. Little children, the little children that's in the front row, were made to be temples of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place for the living God, made for his presence. And so the warning here is, don't despise children. Lead them to Jesus. You know, the world is full of enough stumbling blocks for the church and for older Christians to become those things. You know, just... Thinking about this warning of Jesus, I, I remember when my dad had his accident. We were here on a Wednesday night. We were praying at CTK. It was corporate prayer, Wednesday night corporate prayer. The phone just began to ring off the hook. 
And so finally it was like, I think someone's trying to get a hold of us. Better pick up the phone. And uh, finally when I answered, I got word from my wife that dad had been in a serious workplace accident. That he was being helivac to Royal uh, Columbian Hospital. And so we grabbed the kids and we got on the ferry. And when we got to the hospital, dad was in the trauma ward. And, um, you know, by God's grace, he got through that night. He barely survived. 12,000-pound forklift at speed, hitting a concrete post with his left leg in between. And um, it, was, it was crazy. And so a couple days later, I was spending lots of time going and seeing my dad. And I was there with my grandpa when they wheeled dad out of surgery um, a few days later. He was hoping that they'd be able to save his leg. And when he came out on the gurney, he was still, you know, just semi-conscious. And so I could see the sheet laying on him, that the leg was gone. They had taken it off. And, um, you know, as much as he'd hoped that he could save the leg, the reality was this. It was better that he live without it. It was better that he be, that he be, maimed in this life than the alternative that he die from not taking off this leg that was going to die. A limb would have killed him. And, and this is what Jesus is saying, that there are some things in life that are better to live without than to be thrown in the fires of hell. So he says, take drastic measures. Deal with it. That's why he speaks so harshly. Gouge your eye out. Cut your arm off. Whatever it is. Take drastic measures to deal with your sin. He says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. I can't, I can't help but think of some of the crimes that are committed against children. We're seeing that in, in the world right now and in, in some of the atrocities that are happening around the world. And we see it in our own nation, crimes that are committed against the unborn. You know, Friday we went to little Isabella Dooley's memorial, like I said, when one of Rebecca's friends got up, the text for the service was Psalm 139. And the friend got up and she read Psalm 139 and she talked about Psalm 139 talks about how we're knit together in our mother's womb. And the friend shared how she and Rebecca would lay hands on her pregnant belly and they would pray that passage over Isabella before she was born. You knew me and you knit me together. And it was so powerful because they just, they communicated that they, they said, Isabella served God's purpose in our life and in our family and in this world and in this church. It was quite a stunning testimony. They said she taught us how to pray. She taught us how to fast. They said there's reports coming in from around the world. They named off nations where this little girl was being prayed for. She taught them to pray. And, and, and Jesus says, in fact, you know what the pastor said? He said, she's like a prophet to our church. I thought, wow. And Jesus says, see that you do not despise any one of these little ones. 
For I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is where we get the idea that every child has a guardian angel. Do you see that in there? Jesus says they have an angel and that angel has access to the Father. In fact, that angel reports right to the Father's face. You know, we don't see the unseen realm and angels. We don't know what heavenly and angelic, angelic spirits are present even here in our midst this morning. But this is beautiful. It tells us we have a guardian angel. Children have a guardian angel. You know, I think of the stories in Acts where Peter was brought out of prison by the angel or Uh, An angel ministered to Paul. We read in the book of Revelation even that there are angels assigned to every church. Ministering spirits who serve the heirs of salvation. There were angels who announced the birth of Jesus. There were angels that ministered to Jesus while he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. There were angels present with him in the garden of Gethsemane. They were present at his empty tomb when people began to come to that tomb looking for him. And Jesus says, children have angels and they serve as their guardians. Making personal reports to the Father in heaven. Seeing his face. Reporting crimes that are done against them. You know, I think of God. He's a God of justice. He says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will deal, just God, he will deal with those who harm children. And at the same time, I I believe God blesses those who serve children in his name and for his glory, for his kingdom. Jesus goes on, check out verse 11. I think there's something wrong with your Bible if you can't find it. (laughs) You notice there's no verse 11. We had a laugh at Friday, uh, Wednesday night. There's a, there's a verse also missing from chapter 18 in the ESV. And, um, you know, just the translators over the years said, the best transcripts do not have this verse there. It's added in at some point. And so it's not in your ESV. Uh, if you've got some other translations, you might see that. But So let's just jump on. Verse 12, it's fun. You can go look it up for yourself. Verse 12 says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the, than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's the parable that we call the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. This is not the same parable. It's a little bit different. Luke's parable puts the emphasis on finding the lost sheep that's wandered. Here the emphasis is is on saving, that they not perish, that that sheep not perish. And Jesus has been talking about the loss of a child, losing them to the kingdom. he's, He's speaking about one who has been spiritually seduced you know, from the sheepfold that has been tempted into sin. Uh, One who, if not found by the great shepherd of the sheep, will become hardened by sin's deceit and will perish. And the parable shows us that 
that the Lord has the same love and concern for someone who's wandered, we sometimes we say backslid, as he does for a lost sinner. The restoration of the one who's wandered brings joy to the Father in heaven. Just as much as the lost being saved. And Jesus says it's not the will of the Father that one of the little ones should perish. That's never the will of the Father. And I think about the, our role as a church. You know, one of, one, of the, one of the ministries of the church is seeking for lost sheep. That's, that's one of our functions, one of our, one of our callings. And so, you know, when you think about all that, that Jesus has said in this, this chapter, I mean, if you put a little bow on it, to, to despise a child, to seek to derail a child, is to be out of harmony with the angels. It's to be out of harmony with the Son, Jesus. It's to be out of harmony with the Father who is in heaven. And that's why Jesus, Jesus says, whoever receives a little one in my name receives me. They receive me. And to be a child is to be great. In the kingdom, to be a child and to be childlike is great. And, one of, and when one of his child wanders, all of heaven's powers are sent forth to recover that little wandering one. And so the first ideal of the kingdom that Jesus, just, Jesus speaks of here is, is what greatness is. And he says true greatness is to be like a child. And then he begins to go on and talk about the second ideal of the kingdom and it has to do with forgiveness. When someone's offended you. I don't know if it's because the disciples were mad at each other in the midst of this discussion uh, but Jesus connects greatness with forgiveness. And so the question is, you know, when someone has offended, what is the attitude of the king's subjects? What is the attitude of the father's children? And I think we see here that one of the proofs of greatness in the kingdom is the ability to forgive. So Jesus says this in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. So Jesus, as he spoke about children, warned his disciples. He said, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a rock of offense to others. But suppose that happens. Suppose someone hurts you or you hurt someone. Someone, maybe, let's say someone has offended you. What do you do? What is the mechanism for putting things right in the kingdom of God? How do we set things right? And I think the Lord gives us here a, a beautiful mechanism for peace within the body of Christ. To find wholeness. To find healing. You know, in our culture, we're really quick to get offended, right? That offends me. Just drives me crazy, man. Uh, I, I heard a funny one this week. I'm not even going to report it, but it's like, you offended me. It's like, really? Grow up, man. Like, get a, get a backbone. And, you know, in the, it's, it's so easy to allow ourselves to be offended, to be offended 
in the church, you know, and in church culture, the pattern is really this. You get offended in church, well, then pack your bags and go down the street and, like, find a new church, right? It's like where the pastor's not such a jerk. <laughs> and, and I would say this, you know, in our generation, we have missed out on the beauty of these instructions from Jesus Christ. What Jesus talks about here is actually uh, really powerful. You know, there are a number of occasions that, that I've had the privilege of seeing different people go through this process. And it led to beautiful, beautiful fruit in their lives. There's some people that have sat in our midst over the years that have gone through this process. And God has just freshly used them here in this church because they followed Matthew 18. And they made some things right that needed to be made right. Or they dealt with the offense that needed to be dealt with. And so, you know, as we get started here on the subject of forgiveness, you should notice something, that the obligation is upon the offended party. Jesus said, if someone has offended you, if they've hurt you, go to them and tell them how, you, how they've hurt you. You know, lots of times people offend. They don't even know that they've done it. You know, I, I, there's a story. I haven't told it for a number of years, but it's a great story. It's from my grandparents' home church about two women in that church that fought for 30 years. In fact, for 30 years, they didn't speak to one another. And so finally, um, after years and years and years, they had a pastoral transition in their church. And so the new pastor said, I've got to sit these ladies down. Like I just keep hearing this story about this battle that's happened, and they don't talk to one another. And it's like, we're in the family of God. This should be dealt with. And so the pastor sat them down, and the one, this is a true story. The one lady said, you told me that I was too old. And the other lady said, no, I didn't. I said, you were as good as gold. <laughs> That's a true story. That's a true story. And, and if they had just gone and dealt with things in the first place, all the years of heartache they could have saved themselves. The years of suffering, the strife that they created within their own body of Christ because of the offense that was not dealt with. And so, you see, as we start here, Jesus says the obligation is upon the offended party. Go and tell someone you've been hurt. And in the first attempt for reconciliation, he says just, just those two people in the process, prayerfully go and say, you know, I'm, I'm offended, I've been hurt, I'm the victim of your offense. And if the offender listens, Jesus says, you've gained a brother. You gained a family member. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so the second step, let's say the one-on-one -on -one thing doesn't work. What do you do? Well, the second step is go and get some help from other people. Find, find a, a couple, two, three dependable, prayerful people. Bring them into the loop of what's going on and try to win the person who is the offender. And the cool thing about this process that I think is just amazing is it's like you're trying to win a brother, Jesus says. And this isn't about like being justified and being right. It's like about trying to win a family member and heal something that's divided. 
Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, the goal is, is not to win the case, but to win a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. And so here Jesus gives us an example. It's, it started out as a problem between two people. It escalated. They brought a few people in. There's still no resolve in the midst of this situation. And so Jesus says, uh, now, as it escalates, include the whole church. And if the, you know, instruction and leadership of the church uh, can't find an answer, then you have to treat the person like a, a, if they won't repent, if they won't make things right, then you have to treat them like a, a Gentile or a tax collector. You know, and like I, I mentioned, I think that church discipline in any, many ways is a, a neglected ministry in our time. Don't you think? And when attempts are made, you know, what happens? People just pack up and leave. They just go to another church. And so you know what I, I would preemptively encourage you? That, uh, you know, I hope that none of you or I are never in this situation where this process is necessary. But if you do find yourself in this scenario right here that we read in Matthew chapter 18, I would tell you this. I would encourage you this. Make a decision in your heart. I'm going to enter into this process, even if I don't like it, even if I don't want to. For my spiritual health, I am going to enter into this process. You know, one of the things I observe as a pastor is that often when people just pack up, your problems follow you, man. They just follow you right to the next place. And, and so for health, you know, the Lord spoke into the darkness. He spoke into the chaos and He engaged chaos and brought order. We have to enter into these things. And in the pattern set by Jesus, once this reaches a level of coming before the church and the, and the offender is still unrepentant, then they have to be disciplined, Jesus says. He can't be treated as a spiritual brother. He, he can only be treated as one outside of the church. He's refusing to repent. Refusing to walk in forgiveness. And so Jesus says, you've got to discipline. It's not that you're, you hate the person, but you're not going to hold them in close fellowship. You know, recently, um, a pastor friend of mine was going through a situation like this. It had been going on for a number of years within his church. And just following this pattern of, of Matthew 18. And it, and it was really hard. And they'd come to the point where it was like, we feel like we have to bring this before the church and like make this public, you know? And like say something about this brother who's causing all of these problems. And it was really hard. We prayed together. We, we discussed it together. You know, I tried to bring counsel and from the word of God and they were praying about it with their local leadership team. And um, we got off the phone and I walked outside the door of our church and you know we got these two little planters out there and there's this beautiful maple tree it was in the middle of the summer and it's doing hell it was doing really well and all the leaves are gone and i was thinking about the situation i was talking to the lord and the lord just brought my eye right to this dead branch that was on the maple tree and he told me cut it off prune it off because i'm going to bring new life when you're responsible and do the pruning that I'm calling you to prune. So I, 
one in my office. I cut the branch off. I took a picture of it, and I texted it to my buddy, and I said, this is the word the Lord just gave me for you, my friend. I got the branch in my office. I kept it as a little keepsake. Prune it off. And it was hard for their church. They went through the process, but in the midst of that, God has brought some fresh fruit. It's been good for them. It's been healthy for them. Now, Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so Jesus is saying this, that the job of the church, the role of the church is to to bind sin. Sin is bound in heaven. Therefore, the church is given authority to bind sin on the earth, on the earth. Mercy and forgiveness are released in heaven. They're loosed from heaven. Therefore, the church has been given the authority to loose uh, mercy and forgiveness on the earth. And so binding and loosing, we saw it a couple chapters ago, Matthew chapter 16. It speaks of the authority of the church, that the church has been given to deal with matters of sin, where it's flagrant, where it's consistently practiced and it's in your face. The church has the right to bind sin and the church has the right to release forgiveness where restoration and repentance has happened. Verse 19, Jesus says, Again, I, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on about anything they ask, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I among them. Awesome verses. We often quote verse 20 in our church all the time. They, they have a, a narrow sense to them in, in which they apply to the context of this chapter. Imagine this. Jesus says, where two or three agree on anything on earth, uh, it'll be done. Where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. He, he speaks those words in the context uh, of church discipline. But I think at the same time, they, they have a, a broader sense and meaning that, that apply to prayer, that apply to the reality of Christ's presence that is with us all the time whenever people gather in his name. Let me keep cruising along here. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 but 77 times. Now, uh, the rabbis taught this, that, that when a person wronged you and asked for forgiveness, you should forgive the offender, and if necessary, you should forgive them up to three times. I mean, two times, but, you know, you could do it up to three times. And so Peter here, he's like getting the concept of the kingdoms being really generous, right? You know, it's like super spiritual Peter now. Seven times, Jesus? You know, the rabbis say three. How about we make it seven? And Jesus uh, gives this number 70 times seven or 77 times, but whatever the, the, the math really is this, is 490, 490 times. Now, the question is, how do you keep track of that, you know? How do you track? I've, we're, we're at 489, just so you know, right now, 489. <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you keep track of that? And that's exactly the point. Jesus is saying, just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And where there is binding and where there is loosing, there also has to be free and unending flow of forgiveness. 
And he tells this parable to demonstrate this. Let's check it out. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his own fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, I read that parable and the truth is, is that we, that we all know people who are held in torment, held in torment like they're in a prison because they will not forgive someone who has wronged them. Instead of freedom, they experience anger. You know, instead of joy, there's like bitterness in, in their heart. And, and the Lord tells us that we forgive not, not so much for the sake who wa- uh, of the one who offended us, but for ourselves who have been offended. You know, in this story of the first, the, the first debtor is forgiven a debt that, that's, that's massive, man. It's, it's beyond average. You know, I'm not even going to bother to try and do the math here. It's like, put it in modern terms, this guy owes millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. A lifetime of work would never have afforded this individual the ability to repay the debt. It's kind of, actually, it's kind of like God forgiving our sin. The debt we could never repay. The debt I, I could, I, I, more, I owed more than I could ever repay. And Jesus had mercy. Jesus had grace for my sin. And he forgave it. And, and in the parable, the master had pity on his servant and in mercy, he forgave the debt. But then the forgiven servant goes out to his own servant that, that owes just a pittance and compared to, you know, what he had owed and, and then refuses, he refuses his own servant the, the mercy that he has just received. In fact, he grabs him by the throat. <laughs> grabs him by the throat. And his life isn't a conduit of mercy He's more like the hole in the ground, you know, that you dig and you pour water into and then it just disappears and you pour more, more water into it and it disappears and this guy sucks it all up and he fails to be a benefit to anyone else. 
The Bible tells us freely you have received, freely give. And the lesson is, is that we would learn to be conduits of the mercy of God that has been bestowed to us. You know, maybe you can see yourself in this story, in this parable. Maybe you've been hurt so badly you just can't forgive. Or maybe better yet, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You refuse. And that inability or really that refusal to forgive leaves you imprisoned. Held in the chains of offense. Robbed of joy and peace that could be yours in Christ Jesus. And you can feel like you're in prison. Like, I don't know how to get out of this. And I think, you know, this passage may help you see the answer. The, the master in this story commanded that the servant remain in prison until he paid his debt. But the thing is this, when you're in prison, how do you earn? How do you make money to pay a debt that is beyond anything you can ever earn? The only way out of the prison is to go to the master and to ask for forgiveness. And Jesus says, we are to be people who forgive and forgive and forgive and over and over and over and forgive again and again and again. And I would say, how much more will the Father forgive us when we say to him, Father, forgive me for not forgiving. Lord, change my heart. I had no right. You forgave me a debt I could never pay. And as we consider this text, we just see that, that at the greatness, at the heart of greatness in the kingdom is this, is this childlike nature, this humility of being a child, get it, getting our eyes off ourselves and just being like children before the Lord. And, you know, there's, there's one of these things about refusing to forgive is just there, there's a lack of humility in it. Because you're just thinking about yourself. That's not being childlike. Humility doesn't mean to think less of yourself. It means don't think about yourself. Don't think about yourself. Forgiveness. Forgiving and forgiving and forgiving until we lose count. It's hard. It's hard, isn't it? That's why we need one another and we need... um, the help of God's spirit. You know, I say, I can't forgive. I can't, you know what I would say? Just treat it like a child. Just do it because father said. Just do it because father knows best. See, the choice to forgive is a choice to trust God. I trust you, God. So I'm going to do what your word says, even if I don't like it, even if I don't want to do it, even if it's not comfortable. I'm going to forgive in the midst of this situation. Greatness in the kingdom. It's childlikeness. It's forgiveness. And the Lord help us.